Okay, friends, I'm gonna um, go ahead and start. And so the first thing I'd like to say is just welcome and thank you uh, to this edition of the IEH Zoom Talks. Uh, as you know, one of the things that we try hardest to do at IEH is to create and maintain great conversations on big ideas. And we're trying to make sure that that continues to happen during the COVID pandemic. Um, and so uh, we're delighted to host today um, our friend and colleague, um, Jane Threlkill, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, Dr. Threlkill works in American literature, critical theory, uh, as well as in the medical humanities, and she's been very involved in IAH um, in many ways, including uh, in her work in medical humanities. Um, before we start uh, her talk, I just want to briefly um, remind you of a couple of pieces of Zoom etiquette. Uh, we prefer, if you're able to, that you leave your camera on so we can uh, provide some simulacrum of the kind of face-to-face -face community we try to provide. Um, but please leave your microphone off or muted um, unless and until you're participating in the conversation, which we will make sure happens following uh, Jane's talk. Um, I also want to uh, remind you of our next um, IAH Zoom talk, which will be taking place um, a week from yesterday, next Wednesday, the 20th at 1 p.m. Uh, Florence Dorr, also of English and Comparative Literature, and I will welcome Judith Butler uh, from UC Berkeley for a conversation um, about the value of the arts and humanities uh, in, during the pandemic times. So um, please check our website for that. Um, uh, register. We're looking forward to that conversation as well. Uh, this conversation will be recorded and will be posted after a bit of editing to our website. Um, so uh, that's just our, our notification to you of that. Um, so now let me please welcome Jane Threlkill uh, for her, uh, her talk right now, who, who Counts Age in COVID Times? Hi, everybody. It's a true thrill and delight to be with you and to see wonderful friends from all over the place, students as well, uh, welcome. I wanna say a couple of things um, by way of getting started. First of all, I wanna see if I can click through my slides. There we go. It takes a village to work, uh, do the kind of work that we do, especially when we are doing it swiftly under time constraints. I normally work in 19th century American literature, so the time orientation isn't usually quite as imperative, um, but in this case, a lot of people helped me pull together these ideas about aging in COVID times. Not, so here are some, Mimi Chapman, Caroline Fryer, Courtney Van Houten, Ralph uh, Savarese, Michelle Rivkin Fish, and others. I want to just give a little context for why I'm talking about old age in COVID times. I was teaching a class this semester. It was intensive research in health humanities, and the theme was aging in the arts. And my students and I had a lot of exciting plans about going to Carolina Performing Arts, about going to Playmakers, going to the Ackland, doing all sorts of different kinds of experiences as we explore the meaning and the aesthetics of aging. We started noting in February as the um, skilled nursing facility in Kirkland, Washington 
started having a, a number of coronavirus cases and then a terrible number of deaths. So after spring break, we came back, we were on Zoom, and it really became a course about aging in COVID times. So I want to shout out to one of my students, Everett Oxrider, who is on this Zoom talk. She's one of 10 amazing students who worked with me on these ideas. So here's what I want to do. Um, Helen Small, who is a literary critic in England, has written really a quite amazing book called The Long Life, in which she treats aging as a topic that appears in literature and in philosophy. I want to take her concept of not just thinking about aging, but thinking with aging as a sort of method or an occasion for my remarks today. I want to suggest that old age in COVID times provides a mirror and a lamp. Thinking about old age in a pandemic discloses a harrowing paradox at the core of US society. Many older adults in the US are at once existentially isolated and recklessly exposed to the dangers of infection. And we'll talk about that. Thinking with old age in a pandemic makes visible the transformations that many who are not older adults, or at least who think they're not older adults, are experiencing in the months since the World Health Organization declared the novel coronavirus a worldwide pandemic. So one of my students, Tan Nguyen, introduced me to this particular meme, which really spoke to me. That moment when you're worried about the elderly and realize that you are the elderly. Historically speaking, human beings are, as Atul Gawande writes, freaks living well beyond our appointed time. The writer Penelope Lively in her late life memoir, Dancing Fish and Ammonites, calls old age a quote, place at which we arrive with a certain surprise, ambushed, or so it can seem. The poet Donald Hall in Essays After 80 echoes Lively's bemusement. Here's Donald Hall. After a life of loving the old, by natural law, I turned old myself. But he observes that this new status made him into a, quote, extraterrestrial. Age categories are inflicted, generally, rather than claimed, with old age arising from an imprecise recipe of bodily changes, years of life, and societal norms. What I want to suggest is that COVID-19 provides a massive test case for the ontological uncertainty of what it means to be old. In some ways, the cutoff line appears clearer than ever, as when the governor of California issued an order which was modeled on those in Europe, calling for home isolation of those 65 and older. Although statistics show the salience of other groupings based on occupation, race, and class for who is especially susceptible to the virus, there have been no calls to confine Latinos or African-Americans to their homes or to place nursing assistants in protective quarantine. Instead, uh, 
I should mention that given the 65 and older cutoff, 49 US senators should have similarly restricted. Instead, Congress stayed in session at the Capitol through the winter term of 2020, and they rushed back to work after spring recess despite ongoing stay-at-home orders in the DC region. Here's a quotation from Lindsey Graham. Somewhere between a football team and a nursing home is where I'd put us, Senator Lindsey Graham quipped. Considering the grim statistics about COVID-19 and considering that Graham is a few days shy of 65, his lighthearted reference seems notably tactless. George Saunders, who many of us know from his writing Lincoln in the Bardo, uh, has observed that joking can serve as what he calls a means of rapid truthing. Here's George Saunders. Humor is what happens when we're told the truth quicker or more directly than we're used to. The comic is the truth, stripped of the habitual, the cushioning, the easy consolation. One truth is that elder coronavirus jokes, one, one truth that they register, is the pressure on older adults to relinquish autonomy ahead of schedule. The coronavirus in the US has accelerated a table's turning of generations with baby boomers born roughly between 1846 and 1964, getting bossed around by their concerned children. A USA Today article entitled Coronavirus Role Reversal um, has the writer Sheila Weil Sheila Weller describing a sweet and lighthearted struggle with her 37-year-old son. And here's, the, here's what she writes. Me, Sheila, thanks, we are okay. Don't be concerned about us. We are concerned about you. Him, the 37-year-old, don't worry about us, we're great. We are the ones worrying about you. Repeats for emphasis, you're the vulnerable demographic. Translation, you guys are old. So Graham's quip and this passage, I think captures how empowered feeling old people who write newspaper columns and pass laws defining and restricting older adults don't tend to think they are older adults. Those people are someone else, not me. The rapid truthing of these inadvertent darkly amusing statements amounts to elderly equals other. So we have a discourse of vulnerability. It turns out that the idea of vulnerability and the idea of a vulnerable population comes from disaster studies. Oh. So disaster studies gives us the idea of environments that are unusually or particularly susceptible to damage. Tra transposed onto health, the concept portrays the vulnerable person as passively susceptible to a threat. And disaster studies folks tell us, this obscures the inequity a realization of the inequity of the distribution of risk. A disability studies approach, by contrast, considers structural inequalities, 
how, quote, vulnerability is shaped or exacerbated by inequalities, disempowerment, or access to social protection. Right now in the US, for-profit for skilled nursing facilities, which are known as SNFs, S-N-F, have a market size estimated at close to 200 billion. Staff nationwide at SNFs are roughly a third immigrants and the corporation's huge profits depend on their low pay, while the cost to residents is exorbitant. Elders may be expendable, it seems, but housing them is big business. This is a still from a video by the president of Life Care Centers of America, Beecher Hunter. You don't know that you're aware of this corporation because they're the corporation that owns the skilled nursing facility in Kirkland, Washington. He issued, um, the, the corporation issued this video and I've got the link down at the bottom of the image in which this president uh, gives the corporate response to what he calls the COVID-19 explaining that he was inspired by, quote, a 109-year-old prayer warrior, end quote, at one of the corporation's sniffs. He affirms, quote, our health comes from the Lord, and, quote, we must count on hope and faith to carry us through the coronavirus period of our lives. Quoting from the book of Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible, Hunter advises in this video, quote, go my people, enter your rooms and shut your doors behind you. Take cover for in a little while, the fury will be gone. Um, I'm so glad that Lori Maffley Kipp is here, a scholar of religious studies. She of course would note the context of this particular Bible passage which is um, Isaiah calling out the corruption and the profiteering of the rich and the leaders. And you can see yourselves on the screen what he doesn't read, this president of the corporation. Uh, the earth will uncover its blood and will conceal its slain no longer. So, with that in mind, our easy understanding of who needs to take cover, who is expendable, has been unsettled in COVID times. Different from historical practices during plague, COVID times have introduced the reverse quarantine with the well, to use the term of art, sheltering in place. By the end of March 2020, after the World Health Organization deemed the novel coronavirus a pandemic, the majority of people living in the US were under stay-at-home orders with businesses closed. The initial shutdown has been national in its effects with the economy shrinking. Yet, the articles tallying the dead from COVID-19 outbreaks at skilled nursing facilities 
have appeared in US newspapers daily since February. Sickness and the human response to it often tracks cultural values. The historian Roy Porter writes, bodies are thus languages as well as envelopes of flesh and sick bodies have eloquent messages for society. When I started this talk, when I started to write this article, there was a, a newly acknowledged um, awareness that deaths from the coronavirus, that one third of US deaths were in senior skilled nursing facilities. Europe and Belgium in particular have a different way of counting. For instance, if someone from their nursing facility, in, from a nursing facility in Belgium is sent to the hospital and dies there, they count that person. If someone in a nursing facility dies without a positive coronavirus test, they count that person. Uh, in Belgium, and according to the World Health Organization in Europe generally, the death toll from skilled nursing facilities is 50%. It's likely that it's at least that in the United States. The toll on workers and residents of SNFs bespeaks the dismal valuing of older adults in the US. This must change. Rather than emphasize the indignity of growing old, the real work is to reimagine the conditions commensurate with the intrinsic dignity of the older adults who have parented and grandparented the not yet old among us. Those who are in Janelle Taylor's beautiful and astringent words, the temporarily able-brained. Martha Nussbaum, I think is helpful here. She provides a reframing of the question of dignity. Here's her, here's a passage from Nussbaum. The basic idea is that some living conditions deliver to people a life worthy of the human dignity that they possess and others do not. In the latter circumstance, for instance, frail elders in skilled nursing facilities, these people retain dignity, but it is like a promissory note whose claims have not been met. As Martin Luther King Jr. said of the promises inherent in national ideals, dignity can be like a check that has come back marked insufficient funds, end quote. That was all Martha Nussbaum. So I just wanna wrap up and hear your thoughts. Thinking about old age forces us to confront the deadly consequences of a for-profit world that peddles care at the expense of poorly paid staff, bereft families, and endangered, not merely vulnerable older adults, and, and others in congregate living including people in mental health treatment, refugees at the border, and prisoners. Thinking with age in COVID times reminds us all of the precarity of existence with our vulnerable bodies, fragile well-being, and myriad dependencies, along with our disastrously limited healthcare system. One point that I want to make is that there is a strange COVID-induced 
empathy, I think, that many of us are experiencing, which is to say, if older adulthood to some extent is linked to being un, uh, not having a job, not making money, being uncertain about the future, sitting around more than you would like, feeling that your movement is curtailed in myriad ways, there is a way in which we are all shut-ins now, and yet, and yet, so many people, of course, are still doing the incredible work and putting themselves at risk to keep life going for the rest of us. So I want to end with these powerful words from Caroline Fryer. Part of the discourse of elder vulnerability uh, is matched by a parallel discourse about millennial fecklessness, as if it is only people who are, I don't know what, 30 and under, who are, you know, bellying up to bars in Wrightsville Beach right now in North Carolina. So Caroline Fryer herself, a millennial, she's a medical student, she was in my class this spring, she's intending to go into primary care, and this is what she writes. In the early days of the pandemic, when official guidance was that only the elderly and those with medical comorbidities were in danger of dying from the infection, I found myself worrying most about those magnificent repositories of cultural memory. In my imagination, a fire was burning through storehouses of knowledge, wisdom, and experience. I grieved that we're losing Italy's pasta nonas who fed and nurtured generations, and that we were losing grandmothers in South Korea attending primary school, finally learning to read and write. COVID's high death rate among elders is particularly painful because they are the ones with embodied memories of care and caregiving and are the ones who taught us how to offer care to others. So I guess my concluding statement would be that my hope is that the collective, we hope temporary identification of the not yet old with the elderly may kindle an ethic of care that we can carry forward in the United States after the harrowing of the pandemic is concluded. So, that is just a piece of um, a slightly longer article that um, I'm happy to share with all of you. Um, and it is my attempt to try to think through what the health humanities can bring to thinking about aging in COVID times. So, um, with that, I'd love to hear questions. I'd love to hear about your own, your experiences and um, to move forward with table talk. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jane, for that interesting, exciting, provocative set of ideas about um, the, the changing meaning of aging and the, the I, I, I loved the figure of the strange COVID-induced empathy, uh, which I think may need a, um, a, an acronym of its own. Um, let me open it up for questions and conversations from the, from the group. Um, you can start by just jumping in. If it gets very active, we'll switch to a hand-raising um, process, but please uh, join the conversation and ask your questions and make your comments. 
this is one thing. So time in a larger version of this article, I, I write about how time and temporality have shifted. Again, putting us, I think, in this enforced empathy with older adults, many of whom, whom have a transformed relationship to time. I want to acknowledge this strange Zoomness that we have right now, and that we all have to uh, become comfortable, myself first, with silence, with thought gathering, with the mediation of our connectivity right now. Um, and with that in mind, let's sit in silence until someone feels like they want to speak. Um, Jane, this is Sue Coppola. Hi. Um, nice uh, you know, it, it seems like there's such a strange contrast between this concept of isolation and the, the, the complexity of our relationships and transactions with everyone, even within the nursing home. Suddenly, we are imagining the, imagining the sociograms of each worker and their families and their families' families and, um, and how they interact with other coworkers. And so it, it's almost, if you were to diagram it, it would look so incredibly messy, maybe really beautiful, but it, it, um, it, it just um, causes me to think on one hand, this isolation uh, idea, and then this connectedness idea, um, in a way that I find myself kind of flipping back and forth between the two. And I just thought you could speak to that. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. I mean, let's just say, first of all, isolation for us gregarious, weird creatures is not, you know, our normal way of being. We know that isolation, lack of um, cognitive stimulation, emotional attachment, um, co connection to the outside, to sunshine, um, to activities is an utter disaster for older adults cognitively. Mm -hmm. My daughter has a friend whose granddad went into a skilled nursing facility right during the lockdown. So right when that isolation you're talking about became super enforced in in SNPs. The family was heartbroken because his cognition and capacity declined so much in just days of that kind of experience. So that's thing one, the disaster of isolation for, for frail elders. But the second thing that I really want to emphasize because um, you're talking about kind of the Venn diagrams of connectivity among especially workers at uh, skilled nursing facilities, it turns out that the majority of workers at skilled nursing facilities work two or three extra jo jobs and look after their families. Courtney Van Houten has tallied and written about this phenomenon. So because we are paying these caregivers so poorly, you know, the dangerous connectivity is vastly, vastly increased. One last thing that I'll just toss in there. I gave you um, that um, Mr. 
I'm forgetting his, Mr. Hunter of Life Care, and he says everyone needs to go pray. I do want to contrast that response to a response by a skilled nursing corporation called Benchmark. This, um, the CEO of Benchmark also produced a video, distributed it to um, families of residents of uh, skilled nursing facilities, which had dozens and dozens of deaths, this Benchmark group. He said, that what the corporation was doing, get this list if I can remember it, they were increasing worker pay, they were offering childcare subsidies, they were enlisting the transportation vehicles, they were allowing staff to eat at the skilled nursing facility, and oh, there was one other, oh, um, they were uh taking away they were giving unlimited sick leave so okay on the one hand you want to say go benchmark right you're noticing the structural elements that are endangering people public transportation working multiple jobs you know problems with looking after kids but on the other hand can you even believe that the staff at the nursing facility were not allowed to eat meals crazy talk. I have a question, Jane. This is Germa. Um, as I listen to your talk, the thing that strikes me is what's kind of fascinating about this time is how COVID puts into sharp relief problems that already exist. And so I was wondering if you know, the problems of nursing homes, like one of the things that I found interesting, some of the stories that came out about the nursing homes, particularly the ones in New Jersey where people are hiding bodies, they have been skirting federal regulations for a while. So, you know, they, they have a pattern. And, 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 the, and for me, that that. that the shedding of the bodies and the hiding of the bodies was just a manifestation, you know, of existing problems. And so what's fascinating about this moment is that, you know, in some ways, you know, the historian in me is really thinking that the 20th century is a century in which the meaning of old age is changing from reverence to burden. And with that shift is a kind of growing emphasis on youth. And, and so in some ways, what I hear you're saying is that this moment of COVID times accelerates a pattern that has already begun. So Germa, yes, absolutely. And yet, the thing I kind of want to call out is that discourse of the youth, you know, we're a youth-loving, adolescent, fetishizing nation, ignores the fact that right now we have, I want to say, six sitting senators who are over the age of 80 
Do you know what I mean? So part of what I want to call out in COVID times is that perversely, it is, there are a lot of what we can, I think, quite safely call old people who are making decisions that are mm -hmm. elder hating, I think, ultimately elder, despicably elder hating. And let me say one thing, what you said about regulation, guys, you know, we, apparently some people have been riveted to these, you know, discourses that the president has during the day, you know, he talks about this and that. <laughs> one of the things that has been done, and it happened, I want to say in March, is there was a rolling back of regulations about oh, yeah. regarding documentation of what's going on in skilled nursing facilities. Like, even as COVID times mm -hmm. are, as you are saying beautifully, showing the bodies, like we are seeing, you know, on TV, people are seeing the trucks, the refrigerator mm -hmm. trucks. Mm -hmm. Even as this is happening, mm -hmm. there are all these trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars going someplace, right? Mm -hmm. And, and still the regulations are being rolled back in terms of safety for older adults. So it is this toxic stew mm -hmm. of a mythology of elder vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, a frail elder person, like a diabetic person, right? Like a first responder person, I'm not saying they're not vulnerable, you know, susceptible, of course they are. But somehow in our culture right now, the discourse of elder vulnerability continues to persist when it is so obvious that people in congregate living, prisoners, mental health people, frankly, people on cruise ships, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're dying. So I agree. We seem to be a youth loving nation, but there's so many old, older people who should be doing their job, I think. Let me just follow up. I mean, uh, I, I only wanted to put that on the table. And I mean, actually, you know, this is a moment of, even if a pattern has existed for a while, doesn't mean that this isn't what, what this moment calls for, is rethinking what we know and what we're in. So I think that 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 notion, and and, and I, I really like this idea of, of congregate living, and the places where congregate living takes place. I mean, you know, I would encourage you to put universities on that list, mm -hmm. because that is what students live. Students are living in. That is congregate living. That's one of the challenges of of opening a residential university. It is congregate living. So. It, it would be interesting to put, you know, nursing homes, prisons, you know, universities. Um, so. Right. Right. You're totally right about universities. Yeah. And congregate living is just a great framework. Oh, what are all the places where we are? And city. I wanted to, yeah. to talk a little bit about the 
notion of the aging population, the kind of the valuation of the difference of values of life, where we're here, we were hearing about competition, who should be prioritized for ventilators, and that raised questions about uh, what's the value of a life, which for a long time we haven't really wanted to deal with those issues as a society and a lot of things, whether it be uh, evaluating the true costs of workers' risks when they're uh, facing industrial risks and putting that into evaluation, but these kinds of risks. I recently had a post from a friend saying, well, half of the people who go into an assisted living or a nursing home environment die within six months, and you need to put that into a context for these deaths. I don't think that's the case, but that kind of thinking is out there. And there's kind of a, a devaluation of some of the at-risk lives. And it, it reminded me of this comic novel that was written by Christopher Buckley. I don't know how many are familiar with Boomsday in 2007. And the premise of the book was that younger generations didn't want to pay the cost of older people's retirement or extended care. So there would be an economic incentive for people to opt out of existence at age 70. So you would be given an economic incentive up till age 70 and then you would kind of disappear from existence. And just the whole sense of what one's worth is as one ages and the burden placed on younger people in society seems to be one that's really coming to the fore, that hasn't really been uh, addressed openly before. So, yes, there's so much, Mark, in what you are saying. Um, so there was an article early on, it made the rounds of the New York Times and the Washington Post, um, and it was talking about the rationing of care, you know, among the Italian doctors. Well, the last time we heard about, you know, rationing of care was actually, in this kind of way, was actually Sarah Palin, who said that uh, a complex healthcare system that would include families talking about what end of life would look like. And the kind of decision-making and establishing of values and so on, that those were death panels that we were gonna, you know, ration care to grandma and, you know, and, and that taint a, a crucial part, the, these, this issue of aging and getting older and what we value, it tanked that aspect of the Afford Affordable Care Act, right? It also, I just can't believe we put those poor Italian doctors on the spot. They have national health care. Do you know what I mean? Like we, the number of people, like the idea of rationing care, we have a system that denies care to huge swaths. And I talk with my students about it. 
North Carolina has not extended um, me Medicaid, hasn't extended Medicaid even in COVID times. So you bring up such crucial thoughts, but I don't know, the idea of vulnerable and the neoliberal idea of are you making money or, you know, to me, those are shibboleths for these, these systematic ways that we're failing. And I really want to speak up for the young generation. I mean, I'm looking, I see you, Everett, on my Zoominess. And I mean, if the young sit down with their parents, sit down with their grandparents, nobody, nobody doesn't want to look after their grandmother. I'm sorry. And, and especially not our beautiful, smart, UNC students. So that discourse, adult vulnerability, fecklessness of youth, you know, to me, I just look also at Michelle Rivkin Fish and like the discourse of medical anthropology allows us to uncover how these narratives obscure the structural inequalities built into our system. There are trillions of dollars flowing now. Are they I honestly haven't done the work, the public health work, to know how much of that is going into, you know, congregate living, SNFs, prisons. Oh my God, I just worry about the mental health, you know, the people at Butner. I mean, so Mark, thank you. I mean, it's just a nest of issues. Can I jump in here, um, Jane? I'm. You, you brought together so many evocative sort of ways of thinking about this that it's sort of overwhelming in a way to to even try to figure out how you'd piece something together. Um, there's the you know the economic piece of this uh, for sure. Um, there's the po political piece of this, and there are other people just to throw out there that have, like Masha Gessen has been written about mm -hmm. the politics of isolation and loneliness in really interesting ways. Um, Rebecca Solnit is writing about narrative and time in her fairy tale, sort of description of the importance of fairy tales. So there are sort of all these different, you know, humanistic, political, economic sort of ways that people are coming at this. And of course, there's the experiential way. And I know, I know because I was, at the nursing home where your mother was, that you've been through this experientially, as have I quite recently. So um, there's a there's a vehemence behind sort of the ad, being able to advocate in these kinds of situations. I guess my 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 question going forward is, you know, being like you all now at UNC at, at WashU here, I am in the context of a, basically a STEM centered university, a direction which many universities, most universities are going these days. Right. And so the question keeps coming up for me of what role can the humanities play within the university um, in dealing with these questions? You know, and I have to link things like, um, as you're saying, this loss of this rich, richness of cultural memory in the elderly with the fact that Liberty University has just decimated its philosophy department. And there's another university in Missouri here that today has folded its history department. So there are ways in which universities, we're sort of having to push back within sort of our own context here as well. And I guess, but also way, the, or these ways of knowing and of thinking and of talking about these issues. Sure. Um, 
Lori, I don't know if others are experiencing this, but you're kind of going in and out. Yeah. That said, I, I get where you're going and you're talking about the university and you're talking about closing of philosophy departments. I mean, we haven't even opened that box of what higher education is gonna look like <laughs> after COVID times. And, you know, my sense is that at this moment, let me back up. Uh, it has been identified by people who work, people like Germa, um, people in public health, people who work in gerontology, that there are established three plagues affecting older adults in the US especially, boredom, loneliness, and hopelessness. STEM fields don't solve those problems. I mean, I guess computer games, right? I mean, that's all I can think of. But boredom, hopelessness, and loneliness, I mean, it seems to me only the humanities, only philosophy, only religious studies, only history, <laughs> only literature offer any sorts of consolation there. And I feel like, I maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just not guessing that our, you know, chem majors are gonna be battering down the door because what they need, because they need in-person classes. I may be wrong and maybe they do need in-person classes. So I'm going out on a limb here, but what does it mean to have the kind of conversation that we're trying to have without literally skin in the game, without being around a table with people? To me, the humanities and the, the future of higher education and the possibility of ridding ourselves of the three plagues, I mean, the humanities to me are essential. But Andy, we'll find out when Judith Butler comes and talks, what, next week about the role of the humanities in higher education. Jane, I'd like to add to that, that I feel like a lot of what we're discussing with regard to nursing homes is the way that, you know, older people have just sort of become another commodity, that there are these standards of care in nursing homes, which at every turn are considered minimum standards. And at every turn, they are the, the goal. You know, if somebody needs they, I mean, they had this hideous, somebody needs 320 minutes of therapy a week. And the, so all of the, all of the therapy people were complicit in this, okay, you know, you hit 320 and you're done. And no, that was supposed to be the minimum. So everything is created in some sort of measurable way. And I feel like we also in, in um, you know, the sociology and other um, groups have been complicit in this by continually, um, tr continually trotting out Maslow's hierarchy about mm -hmm. survival. Like you have to have food and you have to be dry and you have to, you know, and, and, then, and then it's only if all these other things happen, do you have uh, the right to ask 
to have something to do with your time. And, and I just feel like we've sort of, I mean, the social scientists have been complicit in this by, by not saying that human, humanity is not, you know, by bread alone. And, and, um, and so I think that, uh, that we've, again, we've supported this uh, dominance of a medical discourse. And now we have a medical catastrophe and it's adding to our social catastrophe. So um, Andy's going to have to talk about the culpability of the social scientists, um, <laughs> just saying. But here's what I do want to say. So we have a situation um, where the question is whether 20-year-olds are going to go back to universities and to use kind of what Germa pointed out, go back into that kind of congregate living. And it better be good enough because guess what? they're not going to pay for it, right? Do you see what I mean? So there's a way in which maybe the disruption of COVID with respect to the university and the notion that for congregate living, that for certain kinds of things to work, I mean, you need more than staying dry, you know, to get an undergrad back on campus or, or back paying for their higher education. So maybe some of that wisdom will transpose into other forms of congregate living that should support the dignity, you know, just as much as we support the dignity of our undergrads. But that's me, the optimist. Andy, are the social scientists to blame? Well, of course, as a sociologist, I would never want to take either blame or credit for um, psychology's innovation in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, but I, you know, I do think that um, the question of what the pandemic has meant um, for aging and for lots of other things, those are human questions. And they're mostly questions about behavior and meaning making and decisions and you know, your, your commentary about folks sidling up to the bar in Wilmington, you know, that's not about strands of mRNA or, um, you know, replication processes in vaccines. That's about how people understand and interpret and, um, and make meaning out of stuff they don't fully understand. Um, and so, you know, to my mind, I, I would tend to put um, at least my piece of the social sciences in the same boat as the humanities um, and seeking to really grasp how meaning is made in those, in those contexts. Um, I have a, another question I wanted to throw in now that I've got the floor, Jane. Um, it, I've been intrigued at the, and you mentioned this several times about the sort of zoominess of things, at the role of technology in, in how this pandemic has played out and certainly in how you know, my family interacts with our um, you know, older generation loved ones, um, and, and thinking about how different that technology is than if this pandemic had happened, say, 10 or 15 years ago, and how different yeah. isolation might have been, and um, both the constraining and enabling roles of technology in that. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I'm intrigued at um, what we are being asked to do, what, what, um, what the elderly are being asked to do to um, deploy and use and learn 
to engage with technology, um, you know, as part of this sort of problem of isolation you've been talking about? Yeah, right. Um, so my husband, who, like me, is 57 or 58, anyway, um, he jokes that when he's in full retirement, like nursing home kind of zone, he totally wants to learn how to play video games. Like that's, he, that's what he's going to do. He's finally going to learn how to do that because clearly it's, you know, occupies a lot of people a lot of the time. Um, so, I mean, here's one thing I want to say. Anyone who is talking with their elders right now in a skilled nursing facility, I would say nine out of 10 of them are talking to their loved one because there is a staff person holding the iPad, mm. right? Managing the Zoom conversation, mm. creating the FaceTime opportunity. So part of what's powerful about older adults, and this so, so speaks to Sukapola occupational therapy, is the hands-on, the touching, the embodiment, mm. right? Older adults remind us, until, until the screens are so implanted in us, right? Mm -hmm. There's gonna be human mediation. How many of us have been blessing our IT guys who are trying to help us <laughs> get the PowerPoint on Zoom, right? So, so far, it's human all the way down, even when technology is involved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I, I jump in, Jane? I just I have a couple thoughts. Um, and that is, so two very different things. But one thing I wonder um, in response to Andy's question is, or Andy's comments about technology and how it's mediated this whole situation is that if we didn't have it, if this had happened 15 or 20 years ago, you wonder if it wouldn't have been solved long before now. Because in some ways, the technology protects those of us who have access to it and who have access to jobs that can make use of it um, and separates us from those that don't. Um, and so, you know, as long as there's a certain kind of class of people, if you will, or group of people that this doesn't, like it's inconvenient. Maybe it's not quite as much fun as we might like to have. There are conveniences we're giving up, but it isn't truly as threatening as it is for others. Um, you know, do you, what's the motivation to solve it? I can stay in my tribe, if you will. Yeah. And that's, so that's one observation. And the other, and it, I guess they do sort of link in a way, is it seems to me that what this has laid bare and what people really don't want to acknowledge in the, um, in the nursing home situation, I mean, you see over and over people saying, oh, we have to protect the vulnerable. Right. Um, we have to do that. And I want to, you know, go get my nails done. You know, <laughs> so they're saying those two things at the same time. And it, what they what it seems like people do not want to really acknowledge that this lays bare is this intense interconnection that we don't want to believe that we have. Um, and so, which would go back to sort of American individualism and, you know, all these kinds of things that we can stand alone. 
um, and that we don't, we truly, we want to believe that we are not dependent on others and we are completely dependent on others. And so getting a larger swath of the population to the point that that, that is something they're willing to grapple with and acknowledge seems a big challenge in all of this. Beautiful. I mean, I, I hear you on the cushioning of the technology. Mm. Um, it immediately came to my mind, the whole issue of football and like creating better football helmets, uh. right? Uh -huh. That somehow feels analogous <laughs> to what you're describing. Uh. Um, yeah, here's the thing in terms of isolation and vulnerability, it seems like everybody agrees, everybody agrees. The one place you really don't want to be these days is on a cruise ship, right? I don't know about you guys, but when I turn on an NPR or whatever it is, PBS, and they have Viking crews going down the river, my whole family just bursts out laughing, like who's going to go on a cruise ship, right? Well, the whole point Actually, is... bookings are up like 600%, Jane. Bookings <laughs> for August are up 600%. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, we, we are freaks, right? Atul Gawande, maybe that's where we should end. Atul Gawande said it was freakish that we should live this long. Maybe nature is saying, you freaks, you know, that's crazy talk, Lori. Jane, I just want to put on the table, there is a, a very small group, but there are people who don't want to go to nursing homes. They're well enough not to go to nursing homes, but they're a little sick. They go from cruise ship to cruise ship. Mm -hmm. yeah. And get this, and <laughs> I, I mean, I, I learned this recently. Mm -hmm. um, so well, I just wanna put that on the table. We certainly are adaptable creatures. And I, it's probably cheaper. It's probably cheaper. Oh, it is. Yes, that is one of the um, benefits, yes. Right, $12,000 a month, skilled nursing. Ugh. Well, folks, um, it's five o'clock. I'm delighted to keep the conversation going if folks would like to, but um, let me just say thank you so much, Jane. That clearly um, brought up lots of great topics of conversation. I have another like four questions I wanna ask you. So if we ever actually manage to sit down face to face again, we can keep uh, the conversation going between the two of us. Um, but for now, let me say thank you to our audience for joining and thank you doubly to Jane uh, for opening this conversation for us. Um, look forward to seeing many of you um, back next week for our conversation with Judith Butler on Thursday. Um, but meanwhile, stay safe, stay healthy, um, and have a good week, everyone. Bye. I wish the IIH could drop could send us drone martinis right now. Wouldn't that be perfect? Uh, we love we'd the keep idea. talking. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we should bring our own. <laughs> sure. Okay. We might need it, yeah. Bye, guys. Thanks for showing sure. up. I really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you very Dane. much. Bye, Jane. Great to see you. Take care. Bye. Bye, Ken. Bye, Stephanie. Thank you, Jane. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Bill.